Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello and welcome to episode 358 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today for this story from the southwest of England. As you are listening to this podcast, it's fair to assume that as well as searing humour, devastating insight and sauna life, you also have an interest in true crime. And as you know, you aren't alone and many of us enjoy the content for different reasons, although there is of course always that conflict for some about whether true crime is actually entertainment, but let's park that for another day. There are always loads of surveys spouting nonsense about what our interest in true crime says about us. But there was one survey recently which did catch my eye. Among the usual fluffy garbage was the answer to one question, which revealed that 44% of respondents had a favourite serial killer, with 67% admitting to wanting to meet one. Now, you could suggest that these sorts of findings suggest that for these people, a healthy interest in true crime has become slightly more than that. And in today's story, we go a step further as we look at someone with what can only be described as a very unhealthy obsession with true crime. But first, let's set some context for our story with our guest the month and year game. It's an easy one this time, don't worry. Top of the UK and US charts was Adele with Easy On Me, And in Australia, top of the album chart with 30 was, yep, it was Adele. In the news this month, four-year-old Cleo Smith was found 18 days after she disappeared from a family tent in Western Australia. Eight people were crushed to death and 13 hospitalised in a crowd search during a Travis Scott performance at Astroworld Festival in Houston, Texas. An LA judge ruled to end Britney Spears' conservatorship which had controlled almost all aspects of her life for 14 years. Former Labour MP Claudia Webb was given a 10-week prison sentence suspended for two years after being convicted of harassment. And three men were arrested under the Terrorism Act after a car exploded outside Liverpool Women's Hospital, killing one man and injuring another. So did you guess the month and year? It was November 2021. Today's story comes from Plymouth on the southwest coast of England, around 235 miles from London. Plymouth has a fascinating history. During World War II, Plymouth was one of Britain's most heavily bombed cities, targeted largely because of the naval bases for which it's widely known. Union Street in Plymouth, have you been there? It was a legendary for nightlife back in the day, but sadly now it's just a shadow of how it once was. In more recent years, Plymouth hit the headlines when it was rocked by a mass shooting as 22-year-old Jake Davison took the lives of five people, including his mum, in the Keyham area of the city. Okay, on to today's story. 18-year-old Bobby Ann McLeod was from the Laham area of Plymouth. When we pick up the story in November 2021, life was really good for Bobby Ann. 
Do you recall being 18 and having all those hopes and dreams stretching out ahead of you without maybe the cynicism you have when you're a bit older? Everything feels within reach. And Bobby Ann was a popular girl from a close family who was creative and her dream was to become a successful interior designer. Saturday the 20th of November 2021 was like any other Saturday for Bobby Ann who spent the day with her family. At about 5.45pm she left her home to go and see her boyfriend and on the way out to the bus stop she told her dad that she loved him. The bus stop was just a few minutes away at the junction of Sheepstar Road and Bampton Road and it's on a higher piece of land looking towards houses one way and out to the distant sea in the other direction. As 7.15pm approached, Bobby Ann had not contacted her family to update them on her progress, which was unusual for her, and they started to worry after she didn't respond to a text message asking if she was okay. A few moments later, a local man discovered Bobby Ann's mobile phone and AirPod case at the bus stop. He gave them to the bus driver, who both believed that someone may have left them behind. At 9pm, Bobby Ann's boyfriend contacted her family again. He was concerned and asked if she was still there. Her mum, Donna, now was worried and began calling around Bobby Ann's friends whilst her brother went out to look for her. As concern in the area grew, social networking sites shared information about Bobby Ann and this led members of the community to join the search. A schoolboy from the area found Bobby Ann's AirPods behind her bus stop on Sunday morning and by this time Devil and Cornwall Police had launched an extensive search for the missing 18 year old. The community hoped for a positive outcome. Maybe Bobby Ann had met with some friends and gone off somewhere but it wasn't like her and there was a feeling of real dread in the city, a feeling that Bobby Ann had come to harm. Three days after Bobby Ann's disappearance on Tuesday the 23rd of November 24-year-old Plymouth local Cody Ackland left his job at a valeting department or in a Plymouth garage and he never came back. He played in a local indie band and that day he sent a string of odd messages to his bandmates saying, love you guys. He also sent further messages to his mum saying, love you and love the children. Then at 1.30pm, Cody walked into Charles Cross Police Station in Plymouth and he told officers he'd information regarding Bobby Ann's disappearance. He quickly said, I did it, and confessed to being responsible for her disappearance. Ackland was immediately arrested and asked detectives for a map and directed them to Bovisend, which was about 10 miles from where Bobby Ann was last seen, by a lane which led to a beach cafe, where he informed them that Bobby Ann would be found. The police raced to the scene, and hoped they would find the teenager alive. But sadly, at around 3.45pm, detectives found Bobby Ann's body among vegetation in a densely wooded lane. Ackland had stripped her of her clothes and some jewellery and dumped her body in undergrowth down a slope. Poor Bobby Ann had sustained several horrific facial injuries, suggesting she was subjected to a brutal and sadistic attack. Ackland's car was covered in Bobby Ann's DNA, with blood and blood splatters found throughout the vehicle. Following several disturbing police interviews, the horroring details surrounding Bobby Ann's murder were uncovered. As always, I won't go into all the detail here. 
Detectives described the killer as nervous, passive, and revealed how Ackland was playing with his hands and seemed very pale during the interviews. Ackland got his duty solicitor to read out a statement which said, I'm solely responsible for the death of Bobby Ann. He went on to say he'd never met Bobby Ann before and did not know her name, before going on to explain how he kidnapped her from the bus stop and left her body in the woodland. He told detectives how he, and I quote, decided this morning to tell the police and try and help the police and family. He insisted that no one else was involved with the murder and stated there was nothing sexual about this attack and emphasised how he did not touch Bobby Ann in a sexual way. When asked what had happened, he told detectives, I thought, you need to go out. I was watching TV and I thought, you need to go out. I was watching TV and I thought, I just need to get out and do something. He went on to explain that a recent relationship breakup was on his mind and as he was driving around, seeing happy people made his mood worse. Whilst driving through the Laham district of Plymouth to save time, he noticed Bobby Ann, who resembled girls he had previously dated. He described how he parked his red Ford Fiesta at the bottom of a grass bank beside the bus station where Bobby Ann was waiting and armed himself with a claw hammer, which he claimed he kept in his car to fix dents. Speaking to the detectives, he described how he attacked Bobby Ann at the bus stop. I did it again. I hit her again with a hammer and went back to getting the car and was going to drive away. That was meant to be it. But as he went to get back in the car, he noticed that Bobby Ann was still alive and drove his car back around to the bus stop where he kidnapped her. He described his actions as an industrial way of thinking to get rid of a problem. He told the police he'd thought about taking his terrified victim to a hospital, but was scared about being caught. So instead, he decided to dispose of Bobby Ann. Bobby Ann told him that she was scared, to which he responded, So am I, I've never done this. He said he knew what he had to do and he attacked her 12 times with a claw hammer. After realising that Bobby Ann was still alive, despite this frenzied attack, he said how he felt at that time knowing that she was still not dead. He said, it's not funny, but she started to make a noise and I thought, fucking hell, wow, I mean, hats off to her. He also told how he stood on Bobby Ann's neck to suffocate her and Bobby Ann was, it seemed, alive for a whole three hours after the initial attack at the bus stop before she succumbed to her severe injuries. The following day, a Sunday, at home he closely monitored the social media reports regarding Bobby Ann's disappearance. He drove to a part of Plymouth where he threw the murder weapon into a tributary of the River Tamar and disposed of both his and Bobby Ann's bloodstained clothing at a nearby allotment. The murder weapon has never been traced. He then spent the rest of the Sunday afternoon socialising with friends, eating pizza and practising with his band Rukhada before drinking into the early hours at a pub lock-in. Those who saw Cody that evening described him as happier than usual, saying that he was only usually this happy when he was preparing for a gig. Cody went on to tell a psychiatrist that the feelings of depression he had before murdering Bobby Ann had vanished, saying, as if the violent act had rid him of these feelings. He also told the psychiatrist that the killing 
was not on his mind because it was so out there. It was like a film or fantasy. He admitted he didn't know how he felt about committing the murder and it felt to him like somebody else had done it. Throughout criminal history, the escalation of offending from seemingly small crimes to much worse criminal acts has been widely researched. Violent adult criminals are likely to have been involved in assaults and fights growing up. But Ackland is different as he has no history of arrests or convictions. So just what makes a man who has never shown any propensity for violence carry out such a random, terrible attack? Maybe there are clues in his history. Let's take a look. He was born in Germany in June 1997, where his dad was posted as a soldier. He was a lance corporal in the Devonshire and Dorset Regiment. His parents split up when he was a child, and he went to live with his mum in the Southway area of Plymouth. Growing up, he went to Torbridge High School, the same school as Bobby Ann, but due to their six-year age gap, they didn't know each other. He was bullied at school and he said he began to have suicidal thoughts at the age of nine. There were reports of him being diagnosed with ADHD, dyslexia and anxiety and he was placed on medication. And he had a depressive history dating back to the age of 12. So it seems there was something there from an early age but still nothing to suggest any violence. After leaving school he did various odd jobs but his passion was music which eventually led him to become the lead guitarist and songwriter for the Plymouth indie band Rakuda. And he was good. The band was named after a bar in the city and was influenced by British bands Kasabian and Oasis. They built up a cult following and played all around Plymouth and released several songs in Spotify. One of their songs was even played on the local BBC radio station. Of course, following the murder, the group disbanded. Those who knew him described him as clever and thoughtful, but little did anyone know that he was living a double life. He had a hidden side, which had a morbid fascination, which was an obsession with serial killers and specifically Ted Bundy, who, as we know, committed such terrible crimes in the US before he was caught and executed in the last century. Unfortunately as well, due to his good looks, there are some people who still look at Bundy as different to other killers. And this isn't helped by the monstrous decision of Hollywood to cast attractive actors to play him in films. But of course, the reality of Bundy, if you look at his crimes, is he was the most hideous creatures who've ever lived. While searching Ackland's phone, the police found over 3,000 disturbing images, including pictures of mutilated bodies. In the months leading up to Bobby Ann's murder, he meticulously researched serial killers, the clothing they'd worn, and researched weapons on DIY shop websites. They also found a timeline of internet searches that highlighted his infatuation, I suppose the word is, with the world's most sadistic killers. In August, he looked at Ted Bundy's sketches. Also in August, Ted Bundy dead victim bodies. In September, he was obsessing over the Golden State Killer. In October, it was Ukrainian serial killer bodies. In November, Australia serial killer and victims' bodies. November was Fred West. And the week before Bobby Ann's murder, it was Fred West, Ted Bundy and others. And just days before Bobby Ann was killed, he was researching American serial killer Richard Chase and his victims 
and also searching for Dartmoor and fernworthy forests. The day that Bobby Ann went missing, he was looking at B&Q and books about Ted Bundy. And after her murder, he was looking at clothing on urban outfitters and researching the detective leading the appeal for information about Bobby Ann. We don't want to get all amateur psychology on here, as you know. But one phenomenon that may be linked to him is the copycat effect, which is a criminal act that's either inspired by or modelled on a crime that has been reported in the media. The term first came to light in the 20th century following the crimes of Jack the Ripper, where criminologists believed that the media coverage that followed played a role in inspiring people to commit similar acts. A book titled The Copycat Effects, written by Lauren Coleman, describes the effect the media has on crimes and suicides, which have been inspired by acts that have been widely portrayed across the media. The author's view is that the media constantly covering such events gives the criminals a type of fame which can provoke others with a tendency to act in a similar manner. Despite this book being published in 2004, arguments over the coverage of true crime are still prevalent today. For example, you might remember that Evan Peters' portrayal of Jeffrey Dahmer in the Netflix show received a vast amount of criticism around the world. So was Cody Ackland a copycat killer? Or is that too simplistic a label to assign to him? What do you think? Detective Superintendent West, one of the lead detectives, commented that Ackland had carried out the sadistic and prolonged attack to satisfy a fascination to imitate the crimes of notorious serial killers such as Ted Bundy. He led a secret life, operated clandestinely, and his offending has come as a major shock to those who knew him best. I've certainly asked the prevention around prevention, but I'm convinced that this happened without warning, and nobody could have recognised the level of risk that Ackland presented. And Ackland himself attempted to blame his anger on his parents, saying how he grew up a loner, suffering from depression. But psychiatric reports reached a conclusion that he was not suffering from any mental illness at the time that he murdered Bobby Ann. When the case came to court, emotions understandably were running high, so much so that the judge issued a warning before the sentencing hearing in May 2022. He said anyone who feels they will not be able to contain their emotions should not remain. If there are any interruptions, I shall direct that Mr Ackland is taken back to the cells and I shall clear the public gallery. At least unlike some other high-profile prisoners recently, Ackland did at least appear for a sentencing. In a victim impact statement, Bobby Ann's mum, Donna, said, Bobby was a beautiful girl who lit up our lives and the lives of everyone she ever met. She was kind, funny and loyal. She was the best daughter, the best sister and the best friend to so many people. Everyone who knew Bobby loved her. We've been robbed of our beautiful girl in the worst possible way and our lives will never be the same without her. I want Cody Ackland to know that he has taken away our world. We will never see her beautiful face or hear her laugh, see her get married or have the children she so wanted. So many everyday things have been taken away. Her not being here is still unimaginable. Our lives have changed forever. We've not been able to say goodbye to Bobby Ann and we can only imagine the things he did to her. The thoughts are continually going around in our minds. Why Bobby Ann? Why make her suffer? 
to know her final hours were spent being tortured, destroyed us inside. Bobby Ann was so loved and had so many life plans, he cruelly ripped that life away from her and us. We can't even contemplate a future without her in it. There will never be anything the justice system can impose that will ever come close to what he deserves. The judge told Ackland it had been a prolonged savage and merciless attack. There were effectively four attempts by you to kill her. The first was at the bus stop and you beat her over the head of a hammer. The second was when you tried to strangle her in the car. The third was when you struck her repeatedly with a hammer on the moor in truly terrible circumstances, with her knowing what you were intent upon doing to her. The fourth was when you stood on her throat. This was a prolonged and awful ordeal for this poor person. She was a young, popular and much-loved person. You caused outrage and fear in this part of the country and with good reason. It was utterly motiveless. The judge described him as a highly dangerous person and said there was a strong possibility you may never be released from prison. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 30 years. So what do you make of what we've heard today? An 18-year-old waiting at a bus stop heading into town on a Saturday evening. How many times was this you or your children or your friends and family? It's so common and we expect to be safe just waiting for public transport, don't we? And in a place like Plymouth with such low crime rates, let's face it, this isn't a particularly unsafe district of Mexico where you would naturally be on your guard. And yet a predator like Ackland was cruising the area looking for a victim. What really shocked the detectives involved in this case is the rarity of an individual like him, a man with no prior run-ins with the police, a seemingly normal-ish childhood, and no significant mental issues, and yet he turned into a brutal killer. All those who knew him viewed him as a normal guy, but no one was aware of his other side, one that had a dark obsession with death and serial killers. And scarily, this leaves the question, as he'd never been on the police radar and would not have been thought of as a killer, how long would it have taken to capture him if he hadn't given himself up? The media, as you can imagine, emphasised Ackland's obsession with serial killers. And whilst this is true, as I said in the introduction to this episode, we all have an interest in true crime and we know it will not turn you into a killer. For many of us watching or listening to true crime, it's a way to understand humans in their most raw form. I generally wonder why people read and watch fiction when all of human nature lies in true crime. I guess the reality is that we will never know for certain just what caused Ackland to act in the way he did. And is this one of the great failings of the discipline of psychology? Sure, it's all very well after the act that eminent psychiatrists and psychologists give their insight in hindsight, but that really isn't what is needed. It needs to be before, doesn't it? Or maybe I'm just being naive and unfair, and in reality, we'll never be able to predict what can trigger a monster like Ackland. But we've spoken too much about him already. Our hearts and thoughts as we finish this episode are with the family of Bobby Ann, the family and friends. Poor Bobby Ann, who had a timeline of dreams and memories snatched away, was just waiting for a bus. It just isn't right, is it? Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, 
please just head to Facebook and join over 91,000 of us who talk UK true crime 24-7. And to support the show, please do head to Patreon for bonus episodes and loads of other exclusive content. A new full-length bonus episode about the murder of Eve Howells was released yesterday, and we are still in the middle of our true crime book giveaway, another two weeks to go. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Ben J. I. Am, Barry Leadham, Julia Baker, and Kim MC. Thank you so much for your support. It is really so much appreciated. So why don't you come and join us at patreon.com slash UK True Crime. It costs as little as £1 a month, and you can cancel at any time. You know it makes sense. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. And remember, despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.